Live from the WLIWFM studio in Southampton, New York, on December 13th, 2022, I'm Gianna Volpe on Long Island's only NPR radio station. Long Island gang members who love to boast they're everybody killers unleashed a reign of terror that included the October shooting outside Representative Lee Zeldin's home and even the theft of French bulldogs to fund their crimes, authorities said yesterday. Jorge Fitzgibbon reports in the New York Post that the suspected teenage triggerman in the Zelding shooting, Noah Green, is among 18 alleged members of the gang named in a 148-count indictment unsealed by Suffolk County District Attorney Raymond Tierney, charging the street crew with murder, attempted murder, carjackings, and thefts. Authorities said the gang called itself No Fake Love, or NFL, and that many of its members were affiliated with the notorious Bloods and Crip gangs. Ten of the 18 individuals indicted, the suspects ranging in age from 15 to 27, were taken into custody on Thursday and one uh, into custody on Monday. Seven other indicted defendants were already in custody on other charges, according to Tierney. All of the defendants were arraigned and have been held on significant bail or remanded without bail, the Suffolk DA announced from his Riverhead office. Investigators took a total of eight loaded handguns off the street as a result of the investigation. In addition to the DA's office, the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office, Suffolk County Police, U.S. Marshals Service, uh, New York, New Jersey Regional Fugitive Task Force, and the Nassau County Police Department took part in the long-running investigation. In other news, a new report from a transit technology company confirms what many Long Island Railroad riders have long known. Americans' commutes don't get much worse than they do here. Alfonso A. Castillo reports on Newsday.com that the 2022 Global Public Transport Report, published by app developer MoveIt, gathered data from 10 major metropolitan regions in the United States and found that this year the average transit commute in the New York metropolitan area took 58 minutes, longer than any other city studied in the report. As bad as New Yorkers have it, commuters in other parts of the world have it much worse, according to the report, which found the world's largest or longest average commute is endured in Istanbul with a whopping 77 minutes. And finally, after a search that stretched out over the course of more than a year, the Southampton Village Board has named a new police chief, but the decision was not unanimous, 4-1, to one, with Mayor Jesse casting the sole dissenting vote. At a special session of the Board of Trustees at the Southampton Cultural Center last night, the divided board appointed on a provisional basis Anthony Carter as its next chief of police, effective March 2023. Kaylin Riley reports on 27 East com that Carter 49 is a deputy police commissioner of the Suffolk County uh, Police Department and has a 28-year career in law enforcement, most recently having worked as police inspector for the New York City Police Department from January 2018 to December 2021 before taking the deputy commissioner job with Suffolk County. Carter, a father of three who grew up in Manorville, will start his position uh, officially with the Southampton Village Police in March after taking a civil service exam. Also during last night's meeting, uh, Southampton Village Police Lieutenant Sir Suzanne Hurtow, who's been the acting chief of police in Southampton for the past year plus, was promoted to captain effective immediately. Hurtow began her career with the Southampton Village 
Police Department in 1995, starting as a patrol officer and rising through the ranks to her current position. She's the first female police captain in the department's history and the first of any department on the East End. Once again, Anthony Carter, a provisional hire. His hiring as Southampton Village Police Chief will become effective March 13, contingent on a civil service test, according to Deputy Mayor uh, Gina Arresta. He was offered a five-year contract to be paid $225,000 annually. Reading the weather in the city this morning, not only in honor of the incoming chief, but also our first guest this morning, artist Warren Nidich, joining us for the hot studio segment at the bottom of the hour, ahead of the opening of an exhibit he co-curated in the Big Apple. Uh, let's see. Did I even pull up the weather? I didn't. LOL. Well, it's definitely 30 degrees right now. Uh, I'll give you the weather report right after this Chris Stapleton track. It's the cold show. It's been freezing outside, uh, especially last night. And just another love note, just a reminder, keep a little drip going in your sinks uh, just so you don't have any burst pipes. Uh, From me to you, I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Chris Stapleton. And you, whoever you are out, you are awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only Local NPR radio station, uh, the weather in five minutes here on WLIWFM.
All right, this one for up and off island folks, looking like a sunny Tuesday with a high near 40 degrees. Wind chill values between 15 and 25. Northwest wind around nine miles per hour tonight, mostly clear with a low around 30. Wind chill between 20 and 25. Northwest wind 10 to 16 miles per hour. Right now it's 26 degrees in the city, uh, giving you a little local music. Jack's Waterfall, our featured local artist this morning on the cold edition of The Heart. It's Cold Rain from the Rio record of 2008 on WLIWFM. In the mountains down here, A young man walks through the rain. He's on a mountain path searching for his mother's family. Nothing there looks the same. Spots an elk high up near the tree line, follows it down a mountain path. He is led to the doorway of his birth father, is a gateway to the past. It's been a long, long time, so much is on his mind. He just can't wait to come. This cold, cold rain We search for shelter In this cold rain 
of his grandfather the patriarch joyfully comes out he tells his story to the council of the elders about a son who has just been born his grandfather smiles and directs him to follow the calling in his heart Right home, he knows where he must go to protect his newborn son from this cold, cold rain. We search for shelter in this cold rain. In this cold, cold rain, is it getting better? In this cold.
Jack's Waterfall on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM 88.3 on the FM dial throughout eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, 96.9 in central and western Suffolk County, corresponding sections of Connecticut, of course, streaming online to wherever you are at WLIW.org slash radio. I'm Jenna Volpe, the humble host of The Heart of the East End. The weekday morning and midnight show playing music from all decades and genres and speaking to folks from all walks of life, all because of you, the listener supporter of Long Island's only NPR radio station. Uh, this next one. <clears throat> in in this past year, I joined the ranks of parents and grandparents who uh, have seen Frozen probably more times than uh, anyone ever needs to see any movie, uh, although somehow I still love it. And I'm curious there is a moment uh, in Frozen 1 where Anna is struck by her sister's powers and Kristoff gathers her in his arms and he says, <clears throat> she's as cold as ice. Who else goes right here when he says that? Leave me a message, 631-591-7006.
Still waiting for our guest here, so I'll hop forward on the playlist. Elton John and Dua Lipa, Cold Heart, here on WLIWFM. Elton John and Dua Lipa, Cold Heart, here on the cold edition of the Heart of the East End on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. It's the bottom of the 9 o'clock hour on Tuesday, a little after midnight, if you're listening to the replay. And that means it's time for our hot studio segment, where we often talk with an artist. Welcoming back to the program, Warren Nidich. Good morning, Warren. How are you? Uh, thank you for asking, uh, Gianna, very well. So we're talking about one of 
three of your new books. I think you have three out. We're talking about the glossary of cognitive activism. It combines uh, many of the things I love, philosophy, science, science fiction, linguistics, and the creation and evolution of language, putting uh, modern philosophy to work in an almost dystopian way. Readers imagine ways that computers might control minds and record thoughts in a connectome or will otherwise be entirely transformed as we peek beyond capitalism via accelerationism. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, a little bit about some of the terms that we learn, uh, like capitalist realism. And, and why do you suppose, Warren, uh, as mentioned, it might be easier for some to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism? Well, uh, actually, uh, that is not my term. It's a term I describe in the book, but it's the term of Mark Fisher, the late Mark Fisher, the great pop philosopher uh, from London who actually invented that term. And he basically argued um, that after Thatcherism, or after really the, the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall, that we no longer had any other options and that we couldn't imagine a world without uh, this system of social, economic, historical, and technological relations, which we call capitalism, and that it was be it was impossible to think beyond it or think of any solutions. So that was his idea. Right. I mean, a lot of. I mean, almost the entire book is others' ideas. It's it's the most beautiful collage of a book. Uh, if you're into philosophy at all, uh, this is sort of a a must have because. Uh, you have everyone in there. Can you can you talk about uh, how much you read? Because uh, there is an enormous amount of cross referencing throughout this uh, glossary. Well, uh, you know, honestly, I think that there's two really important parts of the book, and one of them is 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 the index. And the bibliography, both of them. I mean, mm -hmm. the bibliography is, you know, a goldmine for anybody who's interested right. in the ideas of the 21st century. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is that, yes, I woke up every morning for five years uh, at five o'clock in the morning and wrote till 10 in the morning for five years. And um, to make that book, uh, it was extremely important effort for me and uh, took a lot out of me, <laughs> I must say. But yeah, so that's how you do it. I can only imagine. Like I'm that, curious, like, what what was it like for you at the end of that five years? I have to imagine that, uh, you know, like, where were you? Were you uh, a bit disconnected from this reality? Although disconnected from reality is sort of the reality we all kind of live in these days anyway. Well, as anybody who knows who writes, you do uh, become antisocial. You become right. so withdrawn into your own thoughts. That's one of the uh, you know, things that happens. Um, what happens when you finish a book like that uh, is that you realize you forgot a lot of the terms that, that you should have put in. <laughs> so, you need, so you need to put a second edition and a third edition. And I just finished the third edition. Um, and, uh, I already, I'm so right now into ecology and, uh, 
and you know this uh you know and the planet and you know these are the kinds of things i'm thinking about right now and right. and the book although it does you know it, it contains words like foreseen and things like that it it's not as um as rich in the uh in in defining these new terms that are evolving um that have to do with the uh with the environment. And one of my interesting words that I actually I'm teaching at Columbia uh, tomorrow and uh, in the architecture department, because I have degree, you know, I have degrees. In right. Right. And I, I went to medical school. I studied neuroscience at Caltech. I began as an artist, you know, so I kind of, uh, you know, I did, you know, I like to tell people I went to 13 years of graduate school, which, which is and, true. and it's beautiful and, because it all, <laughs> it all feeds into your works. And I'm so, I'm so glad that you're such a, uh, not only well-rounded, but just like a multi-potentialite because it, it informs the glossary. You're able to get deeper into uh, certain corners of things like like medicine and neuroscience that you that you might not have if you didn't have the the background that you do. I, I'm I want to talk about cognitariates yeah. and and how folks have become uh, master and slave in one. You know the movement uh, from every man is a celebrity to every man is a brand has not been lost on me and certainly uh, is part of the glossary. Well, the thing about it is is that yeah. yeah. What we we've gone through a series of transitions, and um, you know because we have limited time, obviously, and I want to be as clear as possible. I'll I'll talk about the two ends of it, okay? So we've moved from what everybody remembers as a worker on an assembly line right, right. that political philosophers call a proletariat, right. someone who you know make you know works on an assembly line doing a specific type type of job to create real objects to create cars, to create teapots. And that that proletariats and the assembly line and what's called Fordism is like still... The, right, is still workerism to post... Part of our right. world. Pardon me? Uh, like workerism to post-workerism, is that is that sort of the uh, lines of what Workerism well? is something that happened uh, at the same time. Uh, it was... Workerism is something that really took took place in northern Italy, around Trento and, the, and in Milan at the uh, fiat plant. And it was a, a group of political philosophers who called themselves the cognitive capitalists. Uh, and cognitive capitalism begins in 1975, according to Jan Moulier-Boutang in his book, Cognitive Capitalism. But I like to see, think of it as 1980, when Maurizio Lazzarato, one of these other people who were part of this group um, of worker, you know, workerist philosophers or automa automatism, uh, he suggested that perform uh, that that labor became performative. It wasn't about creating material things. It was about creating what was called immaterial labor. And that is the moment in which the proletariat begins to become the cognitariat, the mental laborer. That right. was a term by Franco Berardi, the mental laborer. A, ment a proletariat is working on an assembly line. The mental laborer, the cognitariat, is working on a screen. And, and we're... And and we're or she is producing data. Right. And, and as time goes by, more and more, uh, we're seeing, you know, uh, automation occur on the assembly line and, and uh, a movement of people toward becoming uh, cognitariates. Uh, many of us are these days... You know, I, I, as you mentioned time, and I'm glad yeah, you did. Especially I was, after, 
uh, COVID because we right. went from there. Yes. You know, some statistics I can't give you exactly the bibliography for now, but but some people say we're spending 40 hours of our waking lives. I always uh, said it was know, like the it was the hard hard right. COVID, we were doing yes. 25. It was the hard right <laughs> yeah. into the digital age that has sort of been long coming, but uh, instead of being uh, slow, it was much more abrupt. Um, I want to I want to give a, a, a few minutes to talk about the new exhibition that's opening that you uh, co-curated um, in Manhattan. It's opening tonight. Wet conceptionalism is that is that right? I'm uh, Sozita yeah. Guduna. I, I'm, oh, I might have said Sozita Guduna. Yeah, Guduna, she's a okay. Greek uh, uh, curator that she runs a gallery called the Opening Gallery and. Uh, I'm curating, curating a show in her gallery. 6 to 8 p.m. tonight on Walker Street in the it's city. Tonight. Yes. So 6 o'clock to or 8 o'clock tonight. If, yep. any of the, if any of your listeners are in Manhattan, please come and visit. And please tell us tell so us everything. It, yeah. Pardon me? I said, please tell us everything about, about what conceptualism. I saw that there was dry conceptualism well, as well. Yes. I mean, everyone, I mean, the artists out there, I don't know if the public, but at least the artists know what conceptual art is, and they remember it as something that, you know, evolves from the 1965 to 1972 in the moment of all of the political, social revolutions that were taking place at that time. Uh, a group of artists um, um, like Joseph Kosuth and Lawrence Wiener and Sala Witt created uh, what was called conceptual art. And they had to be very, very strict because at the same time the conceptual art was going on, minimalism, pop art, op art was also happening. And we were moving out of Jackson Pollock's abstract expressionism, people were moving away from that. And the whole concept was to, to that they wanted to make work that was dematerialized, that was something that was almost invisible, something that was withdrawn, something that was very inemo- unemotional. And what is interesting about it is, as I mentioned to you before, the proletariat working on the assembly line was creating objects, and conceptual art was against objects, basically, it dematerialized objects. It was a moment, it was a type of art uh, that gained recognition because it was very important for a kind of resistance to specific kinds of, 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 of uh, essential aspects of the economy at that time it was based on objects. And there was a burgeoning art world, art market, which has you know, gone crazy now, but at that time it was burgeoning. And what happened was is that it lost its, uh, its zest, it lost its appeal. And um, what happened was it was no longer relevant to this moment of cognitive capitalism that we live in that I mentioned before, when we're all mental laborers, we're not dealing with objects anymore, we're dealing with the material, immaterial labor. One of the key elements of, 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 of wet conceptualism versus dry is that a lot of the artists that are wet conceptualists, and by the way, wet conceptualism was actually taking place at that time, but it wasn't, there were gatekeepers who did not allow those artists to be part of the conceptual art movement. But the social, political, economic, and uh, industrial technological relations have changed so much now that it's necessary to talk about conceptual art and wet conceptualism. That these artists who were there, some of them who weren't part of the dry conceptualism, are in the new show and are called wet conceptualism. So wet conceptualism is emotional because right now we have emojis 
and we have right. we have all kinds of uh, affect is being commoditized, and uh, we don't we we live in a world of experiences. I was growing up and used to have a commercial for a car. They used to open up the hood and they used to look at the engine and they used to kick the tires and then they used to open the door and show you the beautiful wood paneling. And that was because it was really in a, a value economy. You were you were buying something of value that was made. It was a real object. It was really something. That Warren, was. this is this is Today, fascinating. When you see that same commercial, you see two beautiful people, uh, gorgeous, driving down the uh, Route One along the Pacific Ocean in a convertible. They're having an experience, right? So we're in the right. imperial economy. It's an experience economy. You see, yes. So you have to talk about conceptual art. If you're going to talk about the concepts of cognition and and consciousness, you have to think about it. In, it's in, less in about terms the th- relevant. It's so interesting how you're t- you know you're talking. You're right. We it was more in the past. It was far more about the stuff, and now it's far more about the moment, and and yeah, and all exactly. of the variables that that feed into that moment. That's fascinating stuff. And then you get, and then you get into a valorization economy. It's no longer about value; it's about what people want. So mm-hmm. everything, for instance, a Nike shoe, which might cost in the Philippines to make, you know, seventeen dollars. By the time it gets Fifth Avenue, it's costing one hundred and thirty dollars right. because there's been incre- there's been an incredible campaign, advertising, public relations campaign. It's been associated with a famous basketball player's name, and consequently, the um, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, that val- is that everybody wants it, and well, that's what valorization is. And I, I, I always wonder the price of it, the price I, is a hundred dollars more, right? And I, I I always wonder if that that has more to do with like an image that it, you know you're talking about like the incredible ad campaigns, and also it's kind of like this generation's version of like I always think about uh, what the Great Depression was like. And what it would look like now at post Great Recession, and you certainly do see that uh, sort of um, focus on glamour and and uh, these uh, things that that uh, telegraph to other people that uh, this person has has money is, is okay uh, through this. This tough time and and sort of uh, well, you know, things things Deanna, get more extravagant. The way I look at it, actually, the way I look at it right now, if we're watching the news, and this has a lot to do with my work in news, you know, the project I did on PizzaGate and the, the Venice Biennale, but it has a lot to do. And I want to say this because I really believe it. Please when do. you see these people who are experts on TV, they're experts about the economy or whatever. They're public relations people. That's true. They're somebody who went to Harvard and got their economics degree and then goes into a public relations firm. And those people that you see are not really experts. What they are is they're working for either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party because both people are doing it. And they are performers. They are, they are basically public relations people. That, and that is why I don't even think, honestly, if you notice that during the during the uh, the election, the, the pre-election period, there were we were all talking about this recession. There is no recession, as we can see today. The economy is you know very strong, but we've been made to believe that we are in a recession. Or I was talking. Recession. I was talking well, about like in two thousand eight. Well, I was talking about like in two thousand eight <clears throat> when there there was a recession. 
Pardon me. I was talking. I was talking about like 2008. I I was backtracking a bit. I'm not talking about. Yeah, yeah, I know. Today, but I'm just talking about. I'm talking about you know this public relations, and I'm talking about uh, immaterial labor and performances and and valorization economies, and how it operates, mm-hmm. and how it how it's it's evolved into this other thing, where you know, uh, you know, you and like and I I know what you're talking about, and and yes. Uh, especially uh, when you go up the ladder as far as as media is concerned, uh, a lot of the people that you see on shows are people that are are polished and have you know have been on shows before. That's why, like, uh, I I was speaking with a gentleman this morning, Henry Osmers, who is a historian. He works out at uh, Montauk Lighthouse. I like interviewing folks who are like historians, who are experts that don't necessarily go on on the air or are on shows, uh, people that really know their stuff. And uh, it's it's not it's more about what they have to say than, um, you know, anything else. But uh, there it depends on, on what you're what you're talking about. But if you're going to generalize in that way, I can I can agree with you that that there are people that are um, polished that are basically that make a career out of uh, saying a certain thing. I, I think you're 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 talking about. Uh, I'm, you know, I was just I was just you know taking it to its you know foregone conclusion, you know, because uh, you know the interesting thing. Uh, I'd like to go back to your, what we your, were talking about your neural turn and late cognitive, cognitive cap- cap- Yes, go ahead. Pardon me. The, and, uh, the neural turn in late cognitive capitalism. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, part of being an activist, there's three kinds of activism. Yes, uh, there is. There's the activist that tries to change the history that we know. So we see a lot of that right now with reconstructing American history and uh, being able to embrace our history of slavery uh, and all these other kinds of things that, that are constantly in the news. There's that kind of activism. Then there's the activism that you that you see people going on the street against, uh, women, you know, this, this uh, Supreme Court's decision to, against the women's right to choose. You know, we have incredible people on the street, and that, that's in the present moment, the activism in the present moment. And then there's the activism in the future. And that's what I, I'm more of an activist of the future. So I'm more in somehow related to even science fiction a little bit because I'm a speculative uh, I'm a speculative uh, philosopher. So, what do you see I, when you I'm when you look kind of at looking at what's the around. future Are of you? activism? When you look at the future of activism, what what do you mean? What how will well? Act- this is what I was trying to say. Okay. that you know when you when you have a background like mine, uh, the most thing that I'm the most worried about are the new technologies that are inter. inter- and entangling themselves with the brain. Right. So, for instance, uh, brain-computer interfaces being used in the internet, or, or to use to search the internet. Is this like? Are um, we talking about the know, brain brain that, fingerprinting, Warren? Like, what is brain fingerprinting? Uh, and uh, you know, I, I I'm I'm not uh, somebody who's an expert on that, so I would I wouldn't I think it's not a good idea for me to uh, to talk about that to comment on that. I'm okay. not really an expert on that, okay. but I am an expert. I am uh, you know I am an expert on what's called brain computer interfaces. These are interfaces in which your brain waves will be used to interact um, 
interact with virtual reality or interact with the Internet. Now, we live in a moment right now of what's called big data. And there's uh, an incredible scholar at Harvard. Her name is Shoshana Zuboff. And if anybody hasn't read this book, it's called Surveillance Capitalism. It's one of the great books of, you know, of the last, you know, 20 years. And she's been researching, uh, you know, this kind of surveillance capitalism for a long time. And she talks about this idea that we're moving from big data. And I'm going to get back to brain-computer interfaces in a second. But she's, she's talking that we're moving from uh, big data, which is this incredible industry of the collecting data. Data is not just passive, in other words, used by companies to figure out what book we want to read or it what kind of dress isn't. or car we want to buy. But it's actually active, activating and changing the neuroplasticity of the brain, activating the synaptologics of, of the intracranial brain. But the thing about it is, is that what he argues now is something called the big other. And that is that this big data is being used to know our futures, to take away our own personal agency, as our own control of the future. And to, uh, you know, so uh, somebody who's going to be let out of jail or they're making a decision on letting a prisoner out of jail, they can look at the data and make uh, make an assumption on whether he's going to be, you know, a reoffender, a recessivist, you know, mm-hmm. he's going to actually return or, you know, it's it's that kind of data that, um, you know, she's talking about. And what happens is, is that we are going to be moving if, you know, Elon Musk and uh, some other people have their way. We'll be moving from uh, surfing the web uh, with a you know a mouse click with our finger to using our brain waves to do the same. And uh, I think the brain waves and our choices you know it's, it's going to be five, according to you know Facebook it's going to be five times as fast. And uh, that's what's pushing it. You know it's called it's called working at the speed of thought. Um, and uh, what will happen is that. Uh, this data will be, uh, you know, will come out of our own, you know, conscious thoughts and unconscious thoughts. And I, I'm worried about that. Mm. Yeah. And what the implications are. So that's what I mean, you know, that kind of thing I'm worried about. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not funny, but it's um, crazy when, you know, you think about these, these small things that seem small and then you really, uh, really look at it. I think of Bill McGibbon. And um, a book I read in, I don't know, 2005, and I can't even remember the one, but he was talking about uh, genetics and, and the, uh, how we were advancing technologically there and uh, sort of the dangers that were coming uh, when, when you looked at, at that. And, and it's stuff that seems innocuous, something like uh, uh, being able to choose eye color in, in a child and sort of showing where where it all all goes um you know uh, what's coming well you know you have to be for you have to be for uh for progress and i'm you know some like brain computer interfaces you know it's such an amazing technology and it allows people who are paraplegic for instance at brown university they have exactly. these amazing studies in which people who are in a wheelchair and basically don't have any you know have any kind of individual uh, any kind of independence can learn to use their brain waves to move their um, wheelchair away around right. or they can c- control a robotic arm to feed them and the potential of that 
it is incredible. And it's, it's amazing because it's like the tech, and, the technology and, and, could be used yeah, for such sorry. good, but it can also be used uh, and, and turned into weapons and whatnot. It's crazy stuff. We we are far over our time. Yeah. We we blew so I'm far sorry. past. It's I'm all right. Sorry. No worries. Uh, we've got five minutes before or six minutes before the NPR news break at the top of the hour. Wishing Warren Nidich well ahead of the opening of Wet Conceptualism at uh, the opening gallery uh, on uh, 42 Walker Street, 6 to 8 p.m. tonight. It runs through February 7th. I'm Gianna Volpe. That was Warren Nidich. You just heard the Hot Studio segment underwritten by Peconic Landing. Uh, I'm going to hop past Anthony David and Zachary Knowles, play a little Muddy Waters. Uh, Grateful Dead, if we've got the time for it. Nope, looks like we won't really have much time for it. Um, If you do want to hear those lost tracks, Anthony David and Zachary Knowles, uh, Cold Turkey and Cold Winter, you can find the playlist on WLIW.org slash radio a little later today. Um, Stay tuned. Stay with us. Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. If I call my baby Hot spring water, oh yeah, boy, wouldn't help a none. I mean, wouldn't help a none. It wouldn't help a none. Oh, time don't get no better. Down south, people where the weather suits my clothes.
Little Muddy Waters, Cold Weather Blues, leading you into the NPR news break at the top of the hour. Stay tuned for Greg McMullen and Claudia Ledoux joining us for the Tasty Tuesday segment at the bottom of the next hour here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM.